A soldier may be tested on the eve of battle as significantly as he is tested in the battle itself. A soldier may be as profoundly changed by the night preceding a major conflict as he is changed by participation in that conflict. Let's imagine that before us here lies a vast army on the eve of battle. And we stand on the outskirts and we look over the soldiers as they prepare. And over there, we see those who are hiding their fear behind crude laughter and false bravado. And over here in the shadows, we see others who are shaking with fear and some with tears in their eyes, petrified at the thought of facing death the next day. And over here, we find some by the light of a fire writing a letter home, seeking to connect with those that are nearest and dearest and knowing they may never see them again in this life. Some sit alone, staring pensively, some even despondent, finding within no reserves to face this challenge that is before them. The eve of battle has a way of focusing the mind of a soldier on reality. And perhaps it is for that reason that we find so many eve of battle narratives in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. I don't know that I had. But starting to go through the Scriptures and think, in fact, there are many narratives that describe the eve of battle. It may not be actually the night before, but essentially the eve of battle. As soldiers prepare to enter into battle, it might be the spiritual battles of the New Testament. It might be the more physical battles of the Old Testament and Israel of old. But think of it. We have, for instance, Jacob on the eve of what he believes to be the battle with his brother Esau at Peniel on the east side of Jordan. Remember that night? Think of the Israelites as they are facing the army of Egypt with their backs pinned against the Red Sea. Remember that night? Or think of David as he leaves Philistia, sent back and by God's mercy and sovereignty, not going to attack Israel with the Philistines, but he goes back to his city, Ziklag, and returning home, what does he see? His city smoldering in ash. His family taken by marauders. His soldiers talking of stoning him. Remember that night? Think of King Hezekiah who agonizes on the eve of battle against the seemingly invincible Assyrian army. And the prophet Isaiah shows up on that eve of battle. Remember that night? It seems that the common thread that runs through these eve of battle accounts and many others like it in the scriptures is this. God shows up. On the eve of battle, God comes and strengthens the heart of His people to trust Him. On the eve of what seems to be a catastrophic defeat that is pending the next day. And in each of these cases, we learn much about who God is and how He relates to His people. Among these eve of battle accounts is that of Joshua the newly chosen leader of Israel, as he plans the attack against the city of Jericho. Now we gather here this day in a very different situation. And there is a bit of bridge building that needs to take place as we go from Joshua's day outside the city of Jericho to our day and the work that God has given to us. Our responsibilities before God are dramatically different but let me tell you, when someone meets God on the eve of battle, when someone meets God just before an initiative that will demand absolute faith and bold obedience, I want to talk to that person. I need that person. I want to learn from that person's experience because we too are servants of God who must learn to trust God in the dark. We also need to have our hearts strengthened to remember as servants of Christ that the battle belongs to the Lord. We come to a unique setting today as God has brought a partner of ours 
from the other side of the world, Brother Shambu Day, to represent his ministry here. And we have completed here this summer a season ourselves in this church of ministry and outreach to this world around us. And he brings his ministry and we bring our ministry together today and we contemplate together the service of our commander. And I thought it fitting for us to consider how our commander wants us to think and how our commander wants us to serve. We need to serve and think as he would have us think and serve. And to encourage genuine, faithful service to God, I'd like us to consider Joshua's eve of battle encounter with the Lord. But before doing so, we're going to sit and soak for a bit in the old, old story. Let's remember it again. This is not a waste of time. We know these accounts. We know the story. But I think that it's important for us to remember as the people of God the story of a sovereign God as it runs through the ages. So we will take some time to stop and think, how did Joshua get to Jericho? And what has God been doing? What has happened in past salvation history as God brings Joshua to himself on the eve of battle? It starts, of course, with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, where the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. God chooses Abraham as the man through whom God will bless the nations of the earth. Setting that plan into motion, God calls Abraham to leave Mesopotamia and to go to this land of Canaan. Verse 7, then God makes this promise. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abram worshipped as he received the promise. I give you this land. Genesis chapter 15. As the story of Abram unfolds, we come to chapter 15 and verse 1, where after this the word of the Lord came again to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your great reward, your very great reward. Then down to verse 13, as God introduces himself again to Abram here, he says, verse 13 of chapter 15, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation... Your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This is your land. Your descendants will receive it. But first, four centuries of slavery. During that time, the corruption of the people who live here will become so putrid, so complete, that I will bring you back in, after four centuries of slavery and you will receive this land. That's the promise. And according to God's design, to the author of history, Israel goes into 400 years of slavery in Egypt. At the end of that 400-year period, God calls Moses to Pharaoh to say to Pharaoh, Release the people of Israel. He calls for an unconditional release from slavery. Pharaoh refuses. God demonstrates his power and authority by unleashing on Egypt ten devastating plagues. On the tenth plague, on the night of that plague, Pharaoh releases Israel and the company of slaves ventures out into the desert in the middle of the night. But Pharaoh, you remember, changes his mind. He rouses his army. He pursues Israel and pins the fleeing Israelites against the Red Sea. That night, Israel panics. Their trust in God is weak. 
But veiled in a massive cloud, God comes between the armies of Egypt and shrouds them in darkness that night and shines His glory on the people of Israel throughout that night while He splits the Red Sea and permits them to leave, drowning the Egyptian army as they pursue them later in that day. That leads Israel then to the promised land. Through a fairly circuitous route, they come to the other side of Jordan. Spies are sent in, 12 of them, to spy out the land and to see how this military invasion should proceed. And you remember those 12 spies come back and say, it is a wonderful land, but we cannot do it. Their dependence is upon themselves They do not trust God's power, and they balk at the Jordan. God disciplines the nation by sending her on a wandering trek through the desert. And then after 40 years of that waste of time, it would seem, that generation is brought to the grave and a new generation arises. And that generation is brought by Joshua again to the east bank of Jordan. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 1 as we pick up the account there. Joshua chapter 1. This book begins with a sentence that is so devastating, it is hard for us to imagine. It starts with these words, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Everything had rested on Moses. The exodus in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the wandering in the desert, bringing this massive nation to the banks of Jordan, at least to the east side. All of this had rested on Moses and his unique ability to speak with God, and now Moses is gone. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them. To the Israelites, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. And we could add, as I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 4, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This time, Israel listened. This time, Israel moved to the banks of Jordan. It was at flood stage. Seemed absolutely impossible to cross it at this point in time, but Israel did just that as God dried up the Jordan. Whether through an avalanche of the embankment caving in upriver, or purely a miracle, we don't know. In fact, the Jordan has been dammed up twice for nearly a day by caving in of, of rock from the side up, up the river. We don't know how he did it. It doesn't really matter. Israel crossed the Jordan. They encamp at a place they call Gilgal. 
several million people on the west side of Jordan now, Gilgal will serve as the base camp for the initial stages of conquest. It would appear that Israel plans to cut into the middle of Canaanite territory and to cut north, uh, to divide north from south so as to further conquer the land from that base. Gilgal will be the place of encampment. Some amazing things happen here. One thing is that Joshua brings 12 large stones from the bank, from the bed, the dry riverbed of Jordan, and sets it up at Gilgal so that Israel will remember what God has done. And then two events at Gilgal indicate that this conquest is not merely an invasion alone, but is in fact an act of worship. The first event is that God commands Joshua to circumcise all the men of Israel, and Joshua obeys. This was an act of extraordinary faith. If you can picture the situation and think in military terms, you have a flooded Jordan River at your back. God opened the gates to let you this side. He's not going to part the sea to let you retreat, the Jordan to let you retreat. There is a flooded river at your back, and before you are the Canaanites who have known for a long time that you're coming and are preparing for this invasion. They are in walled city-states. States of warriors with kings. And in that setting, with the river to your back, you disable every warrior in your army. This is no way to begin an invasion. This is a way to initiate a massacre. Think of Shechem. It is an act of military insanity. But Joshua realizes that it is God's command, and therefore it is the only safe course of action. And so here we have all of the men of Israel renewing the covenant with God through circumcision, circumcision disabled on the banks of Jordan. But time passes. And the second event at Gilgal is that Israel celebrates the Passover. Chapter 5 of Joshua and verse 10. Israel stopped to worship God. Again, this is an invasion. What are you doing, Israelites? Joshua, what are you thinking? You circumcise the men of the nation and then we stop for Passover. And we celebrate To complete preparations at Gilgal, the manna stopped. Israel's food would no longer come miraculously from God and from the sky, but would now come through their labors from the land that they would possess. God has prepared the nation. They are set on the banks of the west bank of the Jordan, ready to conquer the land. And the first place of conquest is what? It's Jericho just five miles up from the river, seven miles north of the Dead Sea, there is a small city-state called Jericho. This will be no small undertaking for an inexperienced army, let alone, it would be no small undertaking for an inexperienced army, let alone for this army who has spent the last 40 years wandering in the desert and the last 400 in slavery. This is a formidable problem. And that brings us to the eve of battle, chapter 5 and verse 13. Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. With that setting and all of that behind Joshua, he stands now near Jericho, as the text says, verse 13. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua is near the walls of Jericho. It is not a safe place to be. Now, the city is closed up tight. No one can come in or out. And so in that sense, Joshua is at ease. But he is standing on enemy territory. And he is very cautious. Probably at this spot, he is seeking to figure out how are we going to take this city? Should we dig a hole underneath the wall? Should we try to smash the wall in and create a hole? 
Should we build a siege ramp up against the side of the wall and try to scale it? Should we starve the people out, besiege the city? Is there a way that we could trick them out and get them to open their own gates? Suddenly Joshua is startled to see a warrior standing before him with drawn sword. I imagine him there so deep in thought he's kicking himself a bit to say somebody is here and I didn't even see who they were. It's not one of my soldiers. There's no command for anybody to be here. It must be an enemy soldier. And Joshua realizes that he must identify this individual. So he says, the middle of verse 13, he went up to him. That is, he approaches this individual and asks, are you for us or for our enemies? Joshua saw only two possibilities here. Think of his setting and situation. The man before him was either a friend or a foe. But the answer that came back was as startling as the sudden appearance. Verse 14, neither. Neither. The Hebrew, lo. It's often translated simply, no. Wrong question, Joshua. This warrior with drawn sword stands before Joshua and says, I am not here to take sides. I am here to take over. Think about Joshua's position here. He is, if we could call it this, on a hot streak. I mean, everything is going right in ministry for Joshua. He has won military victory over the kings of Og and Sihon in Transjordan. God has dried up the Jordan for Israel to cross. He has obeyed the Lord in circumcising the men of Israel. He has observed Passover at Gilgal for what appears to be only the third time in the nation's history. Times are good for Joshua, and with all the courage of a successful servant of God, he demands that the man in front of him choose sides. You're either with the good guys or you're with the bad guys. I lead the good guys. Who are you? What Joshua does not understand is that with this warrior, things are different. The issue is not if he is on your side. The issue is if you are on his. He identifies himself to Joshua as the commander of the army of Yahweh. How we might translate the phrase, I think probably the best phrase, the commander of the army of the Lord or the commander of the host of Yahweh. The word host or army being the masses of, of soldiers. I am the commander of the Lord's army. I think that he is speaking here of being the commander of the angelic forces of God who stand ready to perform his bidding this heavenly army executes God's sovereign will on earth to judge his enemies and to either deliver or to discipline his people. This army always stands ready at the behest of the sovereign God. I am the commander of this army, says this one before Joshua. And it is not without significance that he stands with drawn sword. It says that the military endeavors of Israel are the judgment of God upon the Canaanites. Remember chapter 15 and verse 16. That time has come. It is time for God and His angelic host to judge the Canaanite peoples. It says secondly and profoundly that God will fight for Israel. As God went with Israel in the desert, so God will go with Israel in her conquest of Canaan. And notice down in chapter 6 and verse 2 how this is made so clear. Then the Lord said to jo Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. The battle's already been concluded, even though it hasn't been started. I imagine Joshua looked up at those walls and said, Really? I tell you, I haven't figured out how to get in there. But the angel, the commander of the angelic army has said, I will deliver this city into your hands. It is a tremendous promise. Who is this commander? 
The answer to that question is perhaps discovered best by what happens next. Verse 14, neither he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Servant. He fell face down to the ground in reverence. The Hebrew word for reverence could be translated worship. He fell down and worshiped. It is the consistent witness of Scripture that when an angelic messenger of God comes before a human servant of God, that the angel will not permit worship. You remember this number of times, I think, especially at the end of the book of Revelation. Stand on your feet, for I too am a servant of God. This angel permits the worship. And I think it is an indication that the one who stands before us is God in some sense of the word. This commander of the angelic army accepting Joshua's worship is perhaps the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Jehovah, whom we see in other passages. In some places, he is equated with God. In other places, he is distinguished from God. So I think it is right for us to conclude that this is the Son of God. Now, this is not the incarnate Son of God. Jesus Christ did not become incarnate. He did not take on human flesh until he was conceived in the womb of his mother. This is not incarnation, but it is theophany. It is the second person of the Trinity who comes in physical form to deliver a message, to reveal a word to Joshua. It is therefore entirely appropriate for Joshua to fall on his face to the ground in reverence and worship and to submit to any order that this commander chooses to give. Such an order is immediately forthcoming in verse 15, although quite unprecedented. The commander, verse 15, of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua, we need to understand, is a warrior who is standing in the territory of a hostile enemy. And the commander tells him to take off his sandals. It might be something of the equivalent in our setting, in our day, of a soldier being asked to remove his helmet in a combat zone. When you take off your sandals, you are not ready to fight. When you take off your sandals, you are not ready to work. You are not ready to travel. When you take off your sandals in that culture and time, you are ready to worship. The nation of Israel crosses the Jordan, and on the other side of Jordan, worships at the start of invasion. Now we have Israel's commander, Joshua, standing in the territory of Jericho, and God calls him to take his sandals off and worship. It reminds us, doesn't it, of Exodus chapter 3, in Abraham at the burning bush, where God says to Abraham, take off your sandals, for you are on holy ground. To take off one's sandals was a way of saying, I am in the presence of God. Now, we believe, and rightly so, that God is everywhere present. And we should realize that we live in the presence of God. But there are times, there are settings, there are situations in which God's people gather where God's presence is to be uniquely acknowledged. And this is one of those times. And this Lord's Day today is one of those times for us. God is with you at all times. He is with you in your home. He is with you as you watch television, as you are on the internet, as you read books and magazines. He is with you in the car as you travel. He is with you in your bed at night. He is with you when you get up. He is always there. We must never forget. But there are times when the presence of the Lord is to be uniquely acknowledged. Joshua, take off your sandals. You are in the presence of God. 
Eden Baptist Church, we gather on a day like this in the presence of God. And it is right for us, understanding the various cultural distinctives of our Western setting here, it is right for us to come and to physically say that we are in the presence of God. There is a goal that we have as a church that I think is right, and that is to be friendly, to reach out to others. There is a goal that we have, in fact, are encouraged in Scripture to greet one another, to encourage one another in the things of God as we gather on the Lord's day. This is a family gathering. We are not here as consumers to get a piece of grace and to run out the door. There's a lot of churches like that. And, they, and I, don't, I mean nothing negatively necessarily, well, I mean a lot negatively, but I, I don't mean to, to throw any unnecessary stone, but there are just people who go to church to get something from the church and leave, and they couldn't care less who goes to church with them. They don't think any differently about going to church than they do about going to the grocery store. They're there to get their grace to earn their way to heaven. This church isn't like that. We have a call from God to encourage one another in the faith, and we need that encouragement. We have a call to greet one another, to participate together as a fraternity, as a family of God. And we want to encourage that orientation in our assembly, but there must be a balance. The chief priority as we gather for worship on the Lord's day is not to meet with each other, the chief priority is to meet with God. We gather on holy ground when we gather as His people. And I really doubt that any church will be legitimately criticized as cold and unfriendly that nurtures an aura of genuine reverence for God in its services. Are you offended that someone was not as warm and friendly as they could be when you come into this assembly and they're praying? That doesn't bother you. We come here to meet with God. And I think that our physical demeanor and the way in which we gather and worship should send that message that we are here in the presence of the Lord. I think I will speak for everyone in our Western setting. Please don't take your shoes off. That's not going to help. In this setting, in this place, that just doesn't work. Now, in Shambu, in Anita's place, that's the way you do it. You take your shoes off. We don't do that that way here. We don't do that here. But whatever the equivalent is in our culture, do we come into the presence of God, and is it clear as a church when we gather that we gather in the presence of God? Do we, in the sense of Joshua, take off our sandals? This isn't a show. It's not merely a social gathering. This is a place to meet with the Lord in a unique way when we gather as a church. Greet one another. Be friendly. We're a family. Love one another in Christ, but when we come to focus on God, let's stand in His presence on holy ground and know that we're doing so. Joshua's encounter with God does not end here. This is where we will leave it off for all practical purposes. I believe it carries right through chapter 6 as our text, in the, at least in the NIV, indicates as it downplays the chapter division, and I think rightly so. Verse 1 of chapter 6 is, an, is a parenthetical statement. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Now we return in verse 2 to the conversation between Joshua and the commander of the army. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. And then he gives instruction to his military commander, his under commander, how he is to carry on the battle. Verse 3, March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the horns in front of the ark on the seventh day march around the city seven times with the priest blowing the trumpets this is absolute insanity as far as military conquest is concerned and what is God teaching Joshua you stand in my presence on holy ground 
I have come not to take sides, but to take charge. Follow me in obedience, and you will conquer Jericho. We are not going to dig under the wall. We're not going to smash it. We're not going to try to climb over it. We're not going to besiege the city and starve people out. You are going to walk around the walls, and you will watch me work so that you will never forget that every conquest from this place on is mine. I will use you. You must walk in obedience. You will need to have courage. But be of good cheer. The battle belongs to the Lord. And I ask us, why is this narrative here? Why is it here for us? It is here, I think, in part for Joshua, this whole situation, verse 16 of chapter 6. The seventh time around when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. He got the point. The battle belongs to the Lord. But why is it here for us? It is here to instruct us in our service to God on this side of the cross. This passage doesn't need to be here, and believe me, it's not here just to entertain us an amazing account all on its own. But it's here for our instruction. Our task, praise God, is not identical with Joshua's. I thank God for this from time to time with great fervency of thanksgiving that I don't have to fight people with a sword. I don't want to drive a sword into someone's stomach. I don't want to have to conquer a city. How privileged we are that our battle is very different. If God leads that way, He can. He is God. And if that is His desire and His will, then that is what should happen. But that is not our task as the church of Jesus Christ. We are not to carry on a campaign of disciplinary extermination of pagan city-states. What is our task? We have the same commander. He's just issued a different kind of command. In fact, it's very similar, but it's spiritual. We have been called by God to make disciples of all nations, to baptize those who believe, and to ground them in the teachings of Scripture. We have been called to assault the strongholds of Satan with the life-giving message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, in this world, that's about as nutty as walking around a city seven times and thinking the walls are going to tumble in. We're going to go to people in this sophisticated age, this technological age, and we're going to tell them about a Jew who died 2,000 years ago? And this isn't a Santa Claus story? He really died and rose from the dead, and that has something to do with you? That is a message that is absolutely unbelievable. It will take courage and it will take trust in the Lord to deliver that message. But we are His soldiers who do not go out to take life. We are His soldiers now who go out to give it. Jesus said, the authority is mine. Matthew 28 and verse 18. The authority is mine. And I will go with you wherever you go. Is it easy to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the unbelievers of your world? That isn't an easy task, is it? Is it easy to go to another land, another place, perhaps where Jesus' name has not been heard, or where the church of Jesus Christ is so small and insignificant that so many people have never even heard about the gospel? Is that an easy task? It is not. It is no easier than conquering a city. But here is what we must remember in India and what we must remember in Minnesota and wherever else we place our feet and take the gospel. The authority comes from Jesus Christ. He is the one who has given the authority and His presence goes with us. It is an unbelievable message. It is a message that only the spotlight of God's convicting power can illumine. We can proclaim the truth, but God's presence alone will bring it to fruition. And so we assault the gates of hell with gospel, 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ because our commander has commissioned us to do so and is with us in the battle. It's a daunting task, but let's remember. I'd like to say this from Joshua, just by way of application briefly. I think we learn here that genuine service to God is fueled by worship. Genuine service to God is fueled by worship. The fuel of genuine Christian service is not numerical success. The fuel of genuine Christian service is not monetary growth. It is not notoriety in the Christian world. The fuel of genuine Christian service is to adore Jesus Christ. If you love God with all of your heart, if you adore and worship Him, if you rejoice in His greatness and His goodness, you will serve Him. And a lack of service of God is an evidence of a lack of worship of Christ. However, let's admit this. It is possible for our service of God to be fueled by the flesh and to result in pride. Can we do this today? Pray now. Pray in your spirit. Let's make it a project of prayer that God would so reveal His glory in the ministry of Shambu Day and his family and in the ministry of Eden Baptist Church that our service to God would be fueled by worship that our service of God would be driven by a keen sense of the holy presence of God. That's a fuel that will never run out. Genuine service to God is fueled by worship. Secondly, genuine service to God is empowered by God's presence. Isn't there great encouragement in this? We do not fight alone. The spiritual battle we engage against the forces of darkness belongs to the Lord. It is the sovereign God of heaven and earth who fights for us in his cause. And I think that realization, to really sense that God is with us, that his presence goes with us, results first of all in humility. When I know that He is the one who goes before me and He is the one who illumines the Gospel and He is the one who opens the cold heart, when He is the one who empowers service, what have I to boast in? It results in humility. I think it secondly results in courage. I have courage to do what God calls me to do because He goes with me. You remember what he said to Joshua? Be strong, be courageous. That means you're going to be tempted to fear. You're going to be tempted to fall upon your own fleshly resources and fall apart. But I am with you. We must believe this by faith that he is with us. Such a realization produces humility and courage. I think it also produces hard work. This is one of those things that get, you got to get this right in Christian ministry. There are those who say that God empowers. It's the work of God through me, and so I kind of stand around like this empty shell, and the power of God flows through me. I sit around and pray. I wait around for God to show up, and I really don't need to do anything but just be at peace that God will work through me when and where He desires. There are those who teach this and practice it. Well, not very well. They don't. They usually serve God a lot more effectively. But the point is that we need to gather is that when you submit to the empowering work of God, the result is hard work. Is there anybody that gets a sense that Brother Shambu Day is a lazy man? I don't, I've never heard that criticism. I don't think anybody thinks he's a lazy man. Is the conclusion then that he doesn't depend on the Lord? Certainly a person can be busy and not depend on the Lord. That's a danger. But anyone who depends on the power of God working through them will get busy. And they will work. I think 
the account of Robert Morrison, 1807, 25-year-old Englishman, became the first Protestant missionary to China. Morrison would not reach China from his homeland, the reason being that the British East India Company would not carry missionaries. They were hostile to them. And so what does Morrison do? Now you think about it. You're in England and you want to go to China. He goes to America on a ship. I don't remember how long it took, but it was weeks upon weeks just to get to America. Here, he gets another ship and sails all the way to China on the other side of the globe. The ship's owner, the American owner, expressed reservations that all these months at sea were really not worth the effort. And he asked Morrison very pointedly, And so, Mr. Morrison, you really expect that you will make an impression on the idolatry of the great Chinese empire? No, sir, replied Morrison. I expect God will. There's a gold mine there. I expect that God will. Do you expect God to work through your witness and service? Not demand it, not try to put him in a box and guarantee it, but do you expect it? Do you know that God goes with you and works in behalf of those who serve him? Is there that expectation as we labor for the Lord? There's also a great deal of wisdom, not only in what Morrison said, I expect God will, but also in how Morrison got to work. Saying that God will do it did not mean that Robert Morrison went to China and sat on his hands and just prayed, waiting for God to do something. I talked to you about the journey. That's the first thing he did. The second thing he did, imagine this is a daunting task. He had to find someone to teach him Chinese who, if caught, would be killed. So nobody's running ads in the local newspaper, we'll teach Chinese for cheap. They're going to die if they get caught teaching him Chinese. He found the person, maybe the persons. He learned Chinese, and he learned it well. And he got busy and translated the entire Bible into Chinese. It's a task, isn't it, Christian, to read the Bible, cover to cover. He translated it. And then labored for seven years before baptizing the first Christian convert. He died in his early 50s, having seen ten Christians follow the Lord in believers' baptism. He poured out his life carving into spiritual granite. He labored, knowing that the presence of the Lord was with him. And so God's presence goes with us. But when he does, he doesn't make the way easy. He makes it possible. Do you expect him to work? Let me just say, finally, that genuine service to God is evaluated by God. Let's remember that. Genuine service to God is evaluated by God. In the evangelization of the lost, in the fulfillment of our ministries, we should remember that God does not take sides. The issue is not whether God is on our side as Baptists, but whether we as Baptists are on His side. And the danger is that much, as much loyalty comes, it seems, in some circles to names and associations and institutions as come to Jesus Christ himself. It is as if loyalty to the fraternity is an evidence of loyalty to Christ. It is not. Now, praise God for names and associations and institutions. They're necessary. They're useful. By God's grace, they, pro they proclaim the gospel and press forward the cause of Christ. But let's remember that it is not our peers who will judge us in eternity. It is not our peers who will judge this church in eternity. 
It is the Lord Jesus Christ who will stand before us and before whom we must give account. The issue is not ultimately then how people line up to us, but how we line up with Jesus. And in the end, we stand before him, the one who will stand with the angelic army on the Mount of Olives to carry out the final conquest of his enemies. Zechariah 14.1 and Revelation 19.11 and following. The commander of the army of Yahweh will touch down on the Mount of Olives and will carry on the final conquest of his enemies or begin it. Our task then is not to insist that Christ is on our side. Our task is to make sure that we are on his. By God's grace, may that be our prayer. May that be our endeavor. And may we take the steps forward in courage and dependence upon him that are necessary to get on his side. Let's pray. We give thanks, our Father, for this instruction, this rebuke from your word, this great encouragement from your word. May we start and finish with worship. May we depend upon your presence. And may we know in the end that it is you that will judge us. May we be sure that we are on your side. And may the spiritual work necessary take place in our lives individually and in our ministries as a whole. Help us to see that you are God and we are your servants. Were it appropriate, and perhaps it is more than we would ever admit, would that we would fall on our face before you as an assembly and say with Paul and with Joshua, Lord, what will you have me to do? May we bow to your presence and bring glory to your name. This